Hello, everybody. Uh, my name is Wyatt, and welcome to the Coalescence Publishing Podcast. Um, I'm here with my regular co-host, Casey Long. Hello, everyone. Uh, today, we are going to be talking, we're going to be uh, continuing our genre talks uh, series, and we're going to be talking about fantasy in the late 20th century. Um, but before we do that, uh, Casey, why don't you... Tell them a little bit about what their future should be like. Right, right, right. Of course, of course. So I'm touching my crystal ball here, and I am seeing in your immediate future that you should like, share, and subscribe to our channel for more wonderful Coalesce's Publishing episodes. We also have a bookstore for our author team at coalescencepublishing.com. We have some very, very awesome works in there. I would totally recommend you guys checking it out. And, you know, if you want to support us and support this podcast and some of the other projects our writers are working on, you can always visit our Patreon, it's Coalescence Publishing, and you'll get access to some coupons, some early access stuff, and some new additions coming around the first of the year. So, with that being said, why? What are, what are we going to talk about specifically today? Right. So, as I said earlier, um, we are going to be talking about fantasy in the late twentieth century. Um, it's a pretty specific topic, uh, we know. But after uh, my blog post earlier, you should go check that out at coalescencepublishing.com. Um, we actually kind of talked about the prospect of this video and it's a, uh, it's a pretty interesting topic. Um, one thing to note is that we're talking non-scholarly here, right? So this is just our personal opinions and observations. This is, um, light research. We're not necessarily, uh, we're not doctors here. <laughs> like we're not trying to write dissertations. We're just trying to be an educated and we're an educated part of the fantasy fan base and help maybe point people in the right direction. Um, if they want to know more about this genre, right? So, uh, for duh, <laughs> my, so, brain went, my brain went blank. <laughs> let me help you out here, Wyatt. So basically, what we're going to be talking about today, for the most part, is we're mainly going to be looking at some of the 70s and 80s fantasy works and how we transition from that pre-Tolkien era to that post-Tolkien era of fantasy that we see in today's more modern works like Harry Potter, Game of Thrones, and even some of the later books of the Wheel of Time series. But... Let's start with the foundation. Yeah, we had fantasy beforehand, but what started that transition, Wyatt? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so all genres, as we've talked about before in this series, all genres kind of go through this, this cycle of beginning with a new idea, um, kind of birth being birthed into the world by um, 
a number of people's imagination. They kind of become popular and then they become satirized and then they get revitalized. That's usually the life cycle of a genre. And as they get revitalized, they get diversified. Um, so before Howard and Tolkien, um, there was a lot of fantasy, but it was disparate and not very, it didn't have like a cohesive through line with the genre. It was very experimental. Um, and then what happened was you have kind of four people in relatively quick succession um, come into the, uh, the genre of medieval fantasy. First off, um, you get Robert E. Howard, and he, this is the grandfather of the sword and sorcery genre, um, which later becomes more popular in the late 20th century due to comics and graphic novels. But at his time, he was writing for magazines, short story. He was writing short stories for, for specifically the Conan series for we, uh, Weird Tales magazine. And um, a couple of things stick out about Robert E. Howard's works in general, specifically the Conan uh, stories, because those are the most um, particular to the fantasy genre. Um, he relied heavily on themes of masculinity, um, masculinity to a fault many times, um, heroism, the, uh, this high adventure um, idea of of a rugged individual going against uh, just finding new places, going against un, untamable odds, coming out on top, usually um, getting the girl in the end, to put it mildly. Uh, and, and he also relied on the barbarian archetype, which becomes more important with one of the later contributors to the tradition of the fantasy, of the fantasy genre. But uh, the, just remember that barbarian archetype for now and the, the, the kind of aesthetic that comes up when you think about that. Um, secondly, his work set the sort of standard and for tone, for the tone the pacing and the aesthetic of low fantasy until the 20th until the 21st century, really. Um, and just so everyone's kind of keeping track of the timeline here, uh, the Conan stories were published throughout the kind of 1930s from 1932 to 35-ish in Weird Tales magazine. And then uh, you get the second guy who uh, is Joseph Campbell. Uh, if you're a writer, you've probably heard of this guy. Um, if you're not, then you might have heard of him anyways. But uh, just to refresh everybody, Joseph Campbell is the person who wrote the book, The Hero with a Thousand Faces, or um, as it's commonly referred to today, The Hero's Journey. Um, this book was heavily influential on storytelling of all kinds, but specifically particularly fantasy and science fiction, because it provided a template um, for writers looking to author the kind of heroic stories that they would see in mythology um, and King Ar and romances like King Arthur um, and so on. And so in, even in Shakespeare, really, he 
was this literary philosopher and theorist who um, really thought that he'd found the through line to narrative, like found what makes a good story, what makes a good hero, uh, a good main character. And this work was published in 1949. Um, third, the third person to pop up uh, is Tolkien, the grandfather. My man. Of, yeah. My man. <laughs> the grand, yes. Right. He He's the father of modern fantasy. We all know whether you're an author or a reader, most people, most people who aren't even really into fantasy know Tolkien just by cultural osmosis. Um, the movies were immensely popular out in and outside of nerd culture and, and, and fantasy enthusiasts. Right. So um, most people know this guy and there's a good reason. Um, he fathered the modern fantasy genre specifically high fantasy um and really set the standard for high fantasy world building um characterization and the utilization of the medieval very medieval very european um aesthetic for a fantasy world he wasn't only using that he did have other than those settings uh, in Middle Earth. You think of Harad, it's a desert. But the stories and most of the events in the world building really take place in the, in the kind of European forest that he very much fashioned after the British countryside, really. Um, uh, the countryside of England and Wales and Scotland. So then the final guy, right? Uh, we're just, we're almost done with the lightning round. <laughs> uh, the final guy is Gary Gygax. Now, most people probably won't know who this guy is. Maybe, maybe most people. I don't know. D&D's gotten pretty popular. But um, in the 70s, Gary Gygax and a, a couple of other people um, founded Tactical Studies Rules, or TSR, in uh Incorporated. Uh, this was 1973. In order to publish, um, he and Dave Arneson's new tabletop role-playing game, Dungeons and Dragons. And by the late 70s, Gygax and TSR had become heavily influential over fantasy authors. They um, first they were publishers, right? So TSR published paid authors to write books for their worlds so that you're you're talking about the forgotten realms um you're talking about Dragonlance, as i talked about in my blog um you're talking about uh dark sun you're talking about ravenloft all of these worlds were kind of under the tsr umbrella for a long time and that that's a juggernaut right there with regards to how much fantasy is being pumped in out of printing presses and into the hands of the populace. Um, they, TSR and Gygax, drove up the market value of fantasy literature. More people were buying fictional books and so on and so forth. I mean, even in spite of some of the... Excuse me. Sorry. 
uh, even in spite of some of the obstacles that were put in place to try to keep fantasy on the down low, um, a la the satanic panic and so on, really fantasy literature shot up in market value thanks to Gygax and TSR. Can I ask you a question? Um, I hate yeah, to ahead. interject. Did you just say the satanic panic? I I did. <laughs> uh, is have you never heard of that? I've I've never heard of that, and I'm from the south. Oh wow. Um. Well, okay. The quick quick history. Um, the satanic panic was a time during kind of the '60s to the '90s. Um, it kind of continues on to this day, really, in some circles. But um, it was really big from the '60s to the '90s, where um the people kind of the government was getting involved it's hard to describe really there was this panic around fantasy uh dnd was part of it but it wasn't just that it was bands metal bands you're talking about music comics horror um horror books horror movies tv shows um was it it was all kind of caught in this thing called the satanic panic where um everything was kind of getting accused of being satanists everything was kind of being accused of worshiping satan and worshiping demons i mean you got to think like alistair crowley was kind of getting big in this time so um really this time period called the satanic panic it kind of was where every kind of media was under scrutiny by the Christian evangelical right. Oh, I to yeah, I know this. I know this. Okay, so this is where the conspiracy about the global satanic cult comes from. How the powerful world elite is used for like satanic ritualistic sacrifices and stuff well it's like it influenced by that but really just talking about in the context of media like art in general um for instance uh first edition DD had demons and devils in it second edition DD did not they they had to cut that and um the reason that they had to do that was because uh certain media conglomerates uh and the government were getting involved and the, the Christian evangelical right had a lot of problems with the fact that kids were playing in a game that had demons and devils oh. as something that you could interact with. Right. So, so that's the kind of t- stuff that we're talking about. Like you're talking, we're talking about people who would play records backwards and, and hear the, <laughs> hear the, the, the devil the talking devil in the record, right. That, to that, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and in spite of that, Gygax and TSR became a sort of juggernaut towards fantasy literature. And the final thing that they really did, right? And this is what influenced the fantasy genre as a whole um, up until the early 2000s, late 90s, early 2000s, was they really distilled the elements of previous eras. Like they took... Um, TSR, Gygax, um, not just not just TSR though. Like uh, there were other people active at the time. Warhammer Fantasy role playing game, 
that's being developed at the same time. Um, but this was kind of Gygax's baby. He's the one who made this a, a thing. And uh, he distilled in this game the things that that Campbell wrote about, the things that Tolkien had made and the things that Howard had made um, down into all of this sort of this new fantasy wave, this this new fantasy that was accessible to the audience of the 70s and 80s. And the aesthetics, the literary um, pacing, all of it was really um, drawn out of these older works by Gygax and by TSR and Dungeons and Dragons, the writers of Dungeons and Dragons. And now that's kind of like what sets the scene. Now we're in the 70s and we have this new sort of very unique, but also very um, derivative form of popular fantasy. That's what we're talking about, this late 20th century fantasy. Mm -hmm. So let me ask you this. What does it look like? Like what's, what's this late 20th century fantasy look like when we put it underneath the microscope? Mm-hmm. Um, well, it's, it's definitely has a per- certain aesthetic, right? Like you, you can, I'm pretty sure anybody could pick up a, a fantasy novel and, and tell that it's from the eighties, the seventies or eighties, just by the cover. Right. Like 2000s fantasy and so on has this fascination with using real people kind of on the cover. art. If you think about it, think about 2000s fantasy cover art. And it's very um, other than Harry Potter, which had original art. um, You've got a lot of covers that have pictures, basically just photoshopped pictures of real people in in LARPing gear, essentially um, striking a pose or whatever. But then think about the wheel of the, the cover of the eye of the world by uh, the first book in the wheel of time series by Robert Jordan. Think about the cover of a dra- Dragonlance book. Think about the cover of, um, of R.A. Salvatore's the forgotten realms books. The, they have a very particular aesthetic to them um, that traffics in 80s like it's got 80s beards it's got 80s like long hair kind of hairband hair um it's it they kind of sometimes they're dressed in more like medieval inspired garb but sometimes they're kind of dressed in um in hairband 80s rock band inspired clothing even really um I mean, think about the labyrinth <laughs> Oh man. Uh, with David Bowie, you know? Yeah. I mean, think, think that's fantasy. That's eighties fantasy right there. And it, that I think David Bowie's character, right. And, and all of the fantasy elements that are in the labyrinth, um, really take to film what an eighties fantasy book cover looks like. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, no, and I understand that. Like, you can definitely tell a big difference between 80s fantasy book covers and modern fantasy. I've always felt like you could also tell the difference in, I don't know, just how they're written. You know, the writing style obviously is different for the era. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. And there's a couple of things that 80s and late 20th century fantasy, as you called it, post-Tolkien fantasy, um, kind of carried over uh, from that distillation that happened in the early 70s. Uh, You're talking about epic scale. These books have storylines that are very, very epic, and that's carried over from Tolkien, typically. Um, You know, the whole Stop the Dark Lord trope, that that started with him. Um, And it's not a bad trope. It can be done well. Tolkien did it well, and other writers have done it well since him, but the whole um, stop the dark Lord, the inclusion of MacGuffins. Um, I'm not really necessarily thinking that you could call the one ring a MacGuffin, um, but a lot of one ring copies, you could call MacGuffins like these objects that what they do is not necessarily important. Just they're just something that everybody's after. Um, That's what a lot of, post-Tolkien fantasy trafficked in, having objects of great importance, having dark lords and um, so on and so forth. Even into the early 90s, Aragon, the the inheritance cycle, um, very heavily influenced still by um, Tolkien and by post-Tolkien era fantasy, um, trafficking in that epic scale that stopped the dark lord that the end of the world sort of story. And even Dragonlance has this. Uh, I talked about Dragonlance in my blog. It's the storyline of of the mainline Dragonlance Chronicle series is essentially the end of the world is <laughs> coming if the heroes don't stop it. So that epic scale is carried over from Tolkien. Another thing, another thing that's carried over from Tolkien is... Um, an ensemble cast of characters, right? Tell me what you think a typical fantasy ensemble cast looks like. Well, I'll tell you right now, it <laughs> you definitely have to have the hero, you know, the the white knight who is, you know, lawful good. You have the shady character who follows the group because he has or she has some type of like underlying secret objective that she's not sharing with the group. You typically have, you know, the fighters who are also lawful good, and they normally follow the main group leader. And then you have the main character who is either on a great quest to defeat a mighty evil or, or they are the chosen one. Mm hmm. So, yeah. 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 And, you know, that's that's it. That's it. You've got and and really you could distill those tropes even further. Um, A lot 
uh, I, I don't know if I'd necessarily say a lot. I know of a couple of eighties fantasy books that, um, distilled this down into a set of three. You have the knight, right? Or warrior. It can be any, any number of people, just martial prowess really is all that's important. Um, you have the sneaky guy and then you have the mage and that's the ensemble, but it can be split up, you know, like you can have those three or you can have a five man band where you have, um, the, uh, 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 a heart, a character that's the heart, a, her- a character that's the brains, a character that's the brawn, the leader, and then like the lancer. Um, there's a, a ser- great series of videos done by uh, Overly Sarcastic Productions on YouTube that talked about uh, the five-man band and how it breaks down. Um, if you're a writer, I'd highly recommend reading it. But that ensemble cast of characters is of tropic characters, right? And you you can even go so far as to say, you know, every single fantasy book had their Aragorn. Every single fantasy book had their Gandalf. Every single fantasy book had their um, Legolas and Gimli, the 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 quarreling couple of, of friends that's really you know like the, these things that like they're so, so derivative, but also unique to the kind of fantasy that was being trafficked in the eighties. Mm-hmm. One thing I think Wyatt, that we also need to look at when we look at, you know, 20th century fantasy is one of the more progressive things that they've done. And I'm going to use Tolkien as an example. Oh, my dog is not happy. <laughs> <laughs> Poor guy. You're not a YouTuber until you have a dog. I know. <laughs> a dog bark in your video. <laughs> um, but Tolkien introduced women as a main character. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Tolkien, Tolkien was pretty good about that. I, I would even say there were some times, some rare occasions where Howard had powerful you could call powerful female characters they were demanding but i think howard's writing usually bordered on making women into an archetype in and of themselves of a just quote-unquote loud woman archetype really um uh it was men writing women still is what I'm trying to say. Um, and, and Tolkien did that too, to some extent um, there, he gave his women a lot of agency. Eowyn is like an icon, whether Tolkien really wanted her to be or not. She's quite a feminist icon in the fantasy genre. Um, but then what happened though, in the late 20th century, in the seventies and eighties is women be, start to become main characters, not just good care, not just good side characters, but main characters. Right. Um, I, in Dragonlance, there's, an, there's, uh, I don't know all of them, but there are at least four females that are main characters from the first book going forward. Um, and they are not side, they're not sidelined. They're not, um, 
treated as uh, secondary to the story or secondary to the to the group dynamics. They are the main characters. They are part of the ensemble cast, and they are they are really um, pretty good at what they do. And that might be the uh, influence of Margaret Weiss, one of the writers of Dragonlance. But um, it, it, generally, in the seventies and eighties, women start to become main characters in fantasy books and narratives. That's not to say that they're always written well, right? Um, that's not to say that they're not sometimes or even a lot of times treated as secondary to the male characters, but they do become main characters, uh, in their own stories. And they start to have senses of agency and, uh, in these narratives and they're, they're no longer really relegated to the damsel in distress anymore. Um, a lot of times they are, but that it's really in the seventies and eighties that we begin to see women in fantasy treated in the narrative quite well. Now in the art, that's a completely different discussion. Oftentimes they were portrayed very sexually. That's problematic, mm-hmm. <laughs> but we're just talking about the narrative, right? What does the text say? And the text usually the text starts to have a trend toward treating women quite well as main characters. Absolutely. Wow, Wyatt, has it already been half an hour? It has. <laughs> oh, man. I tell you, time flies when we have these discussions. For sure. Wyatt, do you have anything you'd like to add? Uh, no, I'd just say like, share, and subscribe. Leave a comment uh, with your thoughts. Everybody be nice to each other. <laughs> um, Please. And have a happy New Year's, everybody. Yeah, have a happy New Year's, wonderful Kwanzaa. And um, just enjoy uh, enjoy looking forward to the new year. Hopefully the, um, the cloud that's been over us the past few years will lift. So <laughs> we will see. Until next time, everyone, thank you for tuning in, as always, to the Coalescence Publishing Podcast. Thank you, and have a good night.